It is a pleasure to be back here with you. I'm so thankful that Justin agreed to uh, preach last week and did such a, a great job with that. And so today we're going to be picking right back off where he left off. Justin did chapter 2 and verses 3 through 6. If you're going to kind of boil that down to just a couple of words, 3 through 6 tells us we need to love God. 3 through 6 tells us that we need to love God. And it says of us that our love of God will be perfected in what? In obedience. And so that our love for God, our love of God is being perfected, is being made whole through our obedience to God. And so not to obey God is not to love God. And so we recognize that you can't have one without the other. It's not this chicken or egg dilemma, but in our love of God, we are demonstrating that through our obedience to God. And so today, what John gets at is moving from our idea of we love God, and now he begins to turn and describe what it looks like to love those people around us. Because we love God, now he turns and begins to apply that on a, on a horizontal, on a social level. So let me read 7 through 11. That's where we're going to be, and then we will walk through it together. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, and at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and true in you. Why? Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Look at verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. He walks in darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May God give us grace as we seek to learn and apply his word to us. Look how he opens this up. He's before referred to them as as his children, as you, as we, but here he turns and he says, beloved or or dear friends. And so again, he's inviting them in to recognize this message and then apply this message to their hearts. Now, John says something that's a little bit tricky here, and so I don't want you to think that there's an error in the text. He starts off and he tells them, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, it's an old commandment. And then he gets around and he says, okay, just kidding, it really is a new commandment, right? That's, that's how it seems to play out. So we're going to have to just walk through that and understand it. But look what he says, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Those that have left the church that John writes to. You remember they existed as one large church, then a group of people began to believe something about the gospel that just wasn't true. They began to believe things about God, about Jesus that weren't true. So they leave and they go and they set up camp in the same city. And then they're communicating these messages back into John's church saying, you have to do this to be saved. You have to do this to understand who God is. And so now John is tasked with offering a corrective. And in the midst of this corrective, when he speaks and he says, no, you misunderstand, it's this. He wants them to understand he's not adding something to the gospel. They are not deficient in their understanding of Christianity. Those that left misunderstand the gospel. What John wants them to understand is they are perfectly assured and steadfast in their faith. So he tells them, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but it's an old one. It's one that you had from the beginning. Now, in the beginning, is playing on two levels. On the one hand, we recognize that when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, there was some message that was communicated to them. And in this message that was communicated to them, that God is holy, that he created, that they have fallen, that Jesus came in to save them, and ultimately that they responded to him. In this message, they received the true gospel. 
But what he's also playing at in this idea of the beginning is that there's something prior to their existence. There's something prior to their kind of being founded as a church that is finding continuity from an older time to their current time, okay? And so let's look in two places. He says it's an old commandment that you have from the beginning. Look at Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus is, is kind of giving us the law, laying down the law for us. And in verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But look what it says. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Everybody say, I need to love my neighbor. Notice there in Leviticus 19.18 that the founding of this isn't so that he quits egging your car, right? The founding of this isn't so that he doesn't, you know, slit the throat of your ox in the middle of the night. I don't know, maybe it happened. The founding of this is predicated on, I am the Lord. And so he goes through this and he says, you need to love those people around you. And this is why, for I am the Lord your God. So we recognize their understanding of why they should have an external manifestation, why love should flow out from us, centers from God. It doesn't center on, like, we want people to see us as, high, as shiny, happy people, right? This isn't some remake of an REM song. What he's doing in this is wanting us to recognize that our love for others flows from God. So Leviticus 19.18 says we need to love others. Deuteronomy 6.5. Starting in 6.4, starting in 6.4, beginning the Shana says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let's begin to recognize that we are transformed because God loves us. We are transformed because of who God is. And so this is the commandment that they had from the beginning. And we recognize Jesus himself is, in some sense, combining these things in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, in verses 34 through 40, a Pharisee walks up to Jesus. It says, they gather together, and one of them, a lawyer, began to ask him a question and test him. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says in verse 40, and on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's so incredibly important for us to recognize that love of God should completely preoccupy all of our thoughts. It should shape really who we are. And that's one of the things Justin talked about last week. The love of God is perfected in us. God is working in you to perfect your ability to love him. And then from that, too, there's an outward play of this, that we need to, in loving God, we also need to love those around us. And that's what John begins to kind of unravel and, and discuss throughout this. He says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, here we get into the confusing part. He says, and at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Now, what is John on about? Did he, was he not very good at English? Did he not go back and, and review those things that he just said? Is he mismatching terms? Well, what's going on? Well, we have some clarity brought to this in looking at Jesus' words in John 13, 34. In fact, Jesus uses almost the same, same exact construction. 
John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, 34 and 35 rather. Look at what Jesus says. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Everybody say, I need to love one another. He goes on, he says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And look at what he says here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. In some sense, Jesus sets up and says, Christians, brothers and sisters, you are recognized for your, by your love for other Christians. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, I give up. Right? Right? Have you been in church very long? Why did nobody else volunteer along that with me? It's, it's difficult to love other people, is it not? Is it this thing that just, just kind of comes out where these people that are just so very good at overlooking the faults of others? No, you're not. I get letters from you. Like, I know you're not good at overlooking the faults of others, right? That was mostly a joke. (laughs) There you go. Now, this, John does this amazing thing. He says it's it's this new commandment. We need to love God. We need to love others. But look what he goes on to say. It's true in him. It's true in you. It's true in him. It's true in you. So John comes out and he says, look, it does not matter that you look around and you're like, I just, I just can't stand this person. I just can't stand them. They just drive me nuts. They're just so irritating. This is what John goes on to tell you. It is true in him. Jesus looks out and he loves you. Why? Because the Father has enabled him to be a sacrifice for you. God's love is found in you because of the sacrifice of Jesus and because you are a follower of Jesus. Verse 6, chapter 2, we walk in line of obedience with Jesus because Jesus loves those that are found in his name. So, too, we are able to love one another. This is what he says. He says, it's true in him, it's true in you. Because God is able to love the people in this room, we, the people in this room, those of us who are Christians, are also able to love one another. And so you say, whew, this must be an ability I've not yet tapped into, right? This must be an ability I've not yet tapped into because what we find ourselves doing is loving those who are easy to love. We find ourselves loving those who are easy to love, and then we go to those who aren't easy to love, and we're like, I'm going to put you in this box. We're going to call it like the love pause zone, and I'm going to leave you over there. I'm going to step over here, and I'm going to love these easy to love people. And then occasionally, we have to take people on this island, the easy to love island, and be like, oh, no, 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 you belong in the box. Come on over here. And you would put them in this box too and be like, you guys love each other? I'm going to go back over here to the easy to love people. And then occasionally, we're on the island of easy to love, and what happens? We get kicked off when we have to go live over here with these people. And we're like, oh, now these people are now my people? I don't want people anymore. And so we become isolated. And we just give up on church because we find it is difficult to love other people. Anybody raise your hand if you find it difficult to love all the people in this room. Y'all are liars. Like some of you in the back, you're just straight up liars. I'm going to pray for you after I get done trying to love you, right? Look at what he says here. It's true in him. It's true in you. You have the ability to love everyone in this room. You have the ability to love every Christian everywhere all the time. Why? Because it's true in him and it's true in you. It's true in him. It's true in you. Look what he goes on to say. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
John 1, we read it earlier. John 1 and verse 4 says, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and life was the light of men. And the darkness shines in the, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome Jesus. And when Jesus inserts himself into the midst of reality, in the midst of the human predicament, he begins to push back darkness. And because darkness is being pushed back, we are able to love one another. Because darkness has been overcome, and darkness cannot overcome light. We are able to love one another. It's not primarily that we're good at overlooking offenses, right? It's not that primarily that we're good at saying, oh, so-and-so didn't invite me to their party, but it's okay, Jesus loves them, and I guess I can too. It's the reason we're able to love those around us is because God is doing it through us. And if we're going to be obedient to God, then we are found to be those people who are caught up in loving the brethren. This is difficult. This isn't easy. He says, darkness is already passing away. True light is shining. And in verse 9, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. With the coming of Jesus and you're being found in him, you crying out to him for salvation, you have the ability to love those around you. However weak, however imperfect. But what John does is he gives us two application points in 9 and 10 that i got to be honest with you, have ruined my week. They have ruined my week. Verse 9, he says, whoever says he is in the light. 1-5, we find that God is light in him, there is no darkness. 1-7, we find that to have fellowship with God is to be in the light. So whoever says he is in the light, in essence, whoever says he has fellowship with God and hates his brother, where is he? Everybody say, still in darkness. If we hate, the Bible tells us that we don't have fellowship with God, that we're still in darkness. And so you look and you say, Matt, why is your week so bad? Do you hate us? And some of you, whoa, let's just talk later. But look at this. John, the whole time, has been giving us two categories, right? What's the opposite of light? What's the opposite of hate? So when we don't love, we hate. This is what he's saying. This is destroying. Two or three things have happened this week. I'm in the middle of this, I'm studying this, and I'm thinking, man, I don't hate anybody at this church. Like, there's some things in life I hate. Sugar-free gum that tastes sugar-free, right? That stuff's nasty. But there, the mouse that died in my car, well, he's dead, but I hated him. He ruined my Saturday. But there's, like, there's nobody in here, I can't think of anyone that I just think, man, I hate them. But when we understand hate in terms of is the opposite of love, this is what we find. When you aren't actively loving someone, you hate them. Now this is hard. There is no neutrality in this love-hate measure. So this is what we wanna do. I wanna be perfectly neutral towards people. It's easy. It doesn't cost me anything. And it's a fun, happy place to be, right? This make-believe land of neutrality. But John deals with what's referred to as duality. You're either this or you're that. You are light or you're dark. You are hate or you're love. This is what he's telling us. If you aren't loving those around you, 
now John is just talking about the church here, and I'm going to ruin the rest of your days here in a second. But John's just talking about the church. He says, if you are not loving the brethren, you're hating them. And if you're hating them, you're in darkness, not in light. Now, this is hard. You have one of two responses to this. Response one, and this is the, this is the response we're going to call the Christian godly response. Point one, you're a Christian. You learned something you didn't know before. You find that there's something in the Bible telling that you that you have to do something or not do something that you've not known before. We're broken before God. We're humble before God. We confess. I wasn't aware it was a sin. I didn't know that. Would you make my heart look like this? This is where I've been this week. This is where I've been this week. Understanding hate and being guilty of hate when I'm not actively engaged in love has ruined my week. Two or three things this week that have just absolutely put this before me and said, I am withholding love. And when that's true of me, I'm engaged in hate. Now, each and every one of us, if we're honest, and some of you showed earlier that you can't be honest, but each and every one of us, if we are honest, will admit there are times when we don't actively engage in love, right? There are times when we don't actively engage in love. And each time we do this, we are engaged in fostering hate and darkness. What this means for us is that we need to humble ourselves before God, fall down before him and say, I can't love them. I can't love them because they've disappointed me. I can't love them because they don't deserve it. I can't love them because they don't love me. I can't love them because I love this person over here or what they stand for. Confess those things before him and say, but I want to obey and I can't obey unless you change my heart. So God, would you change my heart and let me love those I formerly hated? This is what we have to do. If we're unwilling to do that, what that is an indication of, perhaps, is that you're still in darkness. Because what you're doing in your refusal to actively come before God and ask him to change your heart is that you prefer darkness to light. You prefer, you prefer fellowship with the enemy instead of fellowship with God. This has wrecked me. And I believe if we would each allow God to apply it to our hearts, his love, as Jesus talks about in John 34 and 35, would be seen in us, and we would be known as those who love one another, not those who are against this and against that, and, and, and willing to make a mountain out of a particular molehill. Now look what he says in verse 10, moving into the negative example. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in light. Whoever loves his brother abides in light. One of the evidences of our assurance of salvation is love for one another. Isn't it amazing how God has tied this together? He says, effectively, if you love the brotherhood, this is one of the, one of the things that illustrate your ability to abide, to remain in him. 
our assurance of faith in some sense is tied to our love for one another. You're struggling with whether or not you belong. You're struggling with whether or not you are saved. If you have no desire and then no humility before you to ask God to give you that desire, what John's communicating to here is perhaps you aren't a Christian. It's a hard message to receive. John Reinstein says, whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. There is nothing in you in the way that you live your life that could lead someone else astray. Why? Because you are demonstrating out of God's love for you is flowing out to your love for those around you. And so we read this and we say, okay, fine. I think I could probably get to the place where I love the people in this church. It's going to be hard. It's going to be like a six-month campaign. And at the end of this, I'm still going to have a little bit of bitterness, but I'm going to pray every day that I love the people in this church, this church only. And like you're, you're putting down lines and rubrics and saying, oh, oh, they're a county away. They're like, they're in Hopkins. God's love does not extend to them there. Oh, I'm sorry, you're a liar and misled. I never said those things. Look what he says here. Every Christian, everywhere, at all times. And even in that, we say, whew, all right, all right, all right, all right. You really seem to be on this deal about Christians loving one another. I will give you that preacher, man, but you better shut up before I hurt you. Now look at this. I'm going to make you want to hurt me. Luke 10. Luke 10. We don't get to just love the people in the church. That's hard enough, right? We don't get to just love the people in the church. Luke 10, it would seem that, that lawyers have some of the same peculiarities in the first century that they do in our day. Luke 10, verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up in between them and put them to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Teacher responds the same way Jesus responded earlier in John. He said, You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And this is going to be a lengthy portion of text, but I want you to pay attention. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wants to restrict and limit the number of people he has to love. Do we understand this? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. There's more dead in this guy than there is living. If somebody doesn't intervene, he will die. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So priest is coming down there, and he sees this guy, and he's like, whoa. And so he moves to the complete other side of the road, and he keeps on going. He should have helped, right? So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But look at this. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came upon where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This person that his entire worldview should restrict him from rendering aid to the man he sees in the ditch. This person, that everything he's received from a child, that his entire upbringing should tell him that we don't come together. I have no obligation to help this person. I have no reason. Everybody's going to understand if I don't help him. He sees him and he has compassion. Went to him, he bound up his wounds and pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. 
This guy demonstrates incredible love and care and graciousness to somebody that he had no reasonable expectation to render aid and service to. Jesus tells a story, and we can imagine the words hang in the air. Jesus says, which of these three do you think provided, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer responds, and notice this, he won't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus responds, he says, you go and do likewise. We are called to love, not just those who it's easy to love, but we recognize the love of God is coming towards humanity and Christians. We can't be those who seek to restrict that. Do you understand what I'm saying? We cannot be those who seek to say, well, if it's somebody who lives a good and moral life that's born in the Western Hemisphere and does these things right, this is a person who I am so happy and willing and ready to love. Our love of humanity does not find itself absolved from their treatment, feeling, or position as it relates to us. This is why, Christian, you should find yourself besought with tears for things that happen in the Sudan, for things that happen in Aleppo, for things that happen in Roy City, and for things that happen all over the world. Why? Because we are the people who have been so deeply loved when we didn't deserve it, right? We did not deserve God's love, but his love found us. And because his love found us in the middle of our darkness, in the middle of our indifference, in the middle of our waywardness, in the middle of being dispossessed towards nothing but hate back to him, this is where his love found us. Because this is who we are, we're graciously able to extend that love to everybody we come into contact with. And we recognize that to do anything other than have the active engagement of love is to invest ourselves and be enveloped by hate and darkness. He is light. In him there is no darkness. In order to have fellowship with God, we must walk in the light because he is in the light. Now look what he says here in verse 11. This is where we'll begin to wrap this out. What about the one who remains in darkness? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writing, gives us the indication that the God of this world, God small g, has blinded the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the gospel. Now let me tell you, every one of us, this is our origin story, okay? None of us were born predisposed and headed towards the gospel. All of us were born, no matter how cute, wonderful, beautiful we are, like we never had dirty diapers, all of us were born with the stain of sin and all of us were mired in darkness. And the enemy sought to keep us there. Now those who remain in darkness, this is the path and progression that they walk. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. This is where he lives. This is where he, she lives. This is where they exist. 
Now look at the progression. They walk in the darkness. Every manner about the way they go about their life is walking, moving, existing in darkness. Everything about who they are, they're walking in the darkness. Now look what's going on next. They do not know where they are going. They do not know where they are going. Why? Because they are blinded. They don't see the truth. They walk in disbelief. They don't know where they are going. And look what happens next. Darkness has a compounding ability. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Some researchers were doing a test to see how astronauts would respond or be affected to the loss of light over long periods of time. And so they sent these two researchers, ostensibly with no personal lives, down to live in caves for an extended period of time. And they didn't tell them what day it was, they didn't tell them what time it was, but they kept track of their vitals, they kept track of how they were doing. And they would have conversations with them. And they would ask them, well, what did you do? They said, well, I woke up, I took a nap. And what they found was, with no light coming in, what would seem only like a short, small nap 20 or 30 minutes would be as much as 30 or 40 hours. Being surrounded by nothing but darkness, they had nothing to base reality on. This is where all of us were before we came to know Jesus. Colossians 1.13 is the most gracious, amazing message for all of us. This is what it says. It says that God has transferred us, those who have come to believe in Jesus, he has transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious son. In loving those around us, we communicate to all those who are in darkness that there is an ability to be rescued, that there is an ability to be redeemed. And let me just tell you this morning, if you sit in darkness, you sit in disbelief, but in your heart, you begin to think, could it be true? Could it be true that there's a creator God who on the basis of my sin sent his son Jesus to die that I might be redeemed? I wish that it were true. I hope that it were true. John, 1 John chapter 2 gives us the indication that this thought is not something originating in you. Why? Because darkness blinds. Any positive thought toward God welling up in your heart is the initiation of God to your heart. Don't push him off. But respond in faith. And cry out that God would save you, finally and fully deliver you from darkness to light. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm so thankful that you have not brought me from darkness to light because of my goodness. I recognize there's just not much of it. That you have not saved me and redeemed me 
because of uh, the potential for my goodness, that you saved me on the basis of Christ's goodness. So God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, those of us who have surrendered our lives to you. You would equip us and strengthen us to love those around us. You would equip us and strengthen us to be compassionate with our extension of gospel and to those who remain in darkness, who abide there, recognizing that all of us too found that home. But God, I pray for those who have yet to surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that as we read in Colossians 1.13, that they might be transferred from darkness to light. That even though the God of this world has blinded their mind and kept them from seeing the true light of the gospel, that you would send a shaft of light in to rescue them, to redeem them. That we might love them, not as those needing the love of God, but love those have, as those who have already received the love of God. So God, would you send your spirit in to work in our hearts to lead us in truth and righteousness? Would you send your spirit in to convict us? Would you send your spirit in to comfort us? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.